Welcome to the Words Matter podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. Welcome to the Words Matter podcast. I'm Dr. Oliver Thompson. So in today's episode, I spoke with Dr. Shartan Vibefersen. Shartan is a specialist musculoskeletal physiotherapist and a researcher, and he divides his time between private clinical practice in Bergen in Norway, and he's also an associate professor at the University of Bergen. His research interest lies in the diagnosis and management of MSK pain, and he's led two RCTs investigating the efficacy of cognitive functional therapy for low back pain and these were published in the European Journal of Pain. He's also part of the international collaboration group PainEd.com, which is an excellent resource that translates and communicates the latest pain research to the public and healthcare professionals. And I was really delighted and keen to speak to Shartan. He's been a key individual in the development, testing and teaching of CFT, which I think is perhaps the most cogent, coherent and comprehensive framework to guide MSK therapists' clinical reasoning when helping people with back pain. So in this episode, we talked about the journey of CFT and the core skills and principles, all of which center around communication. We talked about CFT's contribution to clinical MSK practice and chatted about the role of more traditional MSK skills, such as manual therapy, in the context of a CFT framework. So Shartem was a fantastic guest. He shares exceptional expertise, both passionately and energetically, which I'm sure you'll enjoy. I bring you Dr. Shartem Vibefersen. Shartan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Um, so, so, so the reason why I had you, I wanted to have you on the show, is talk to you about your your excellent work and involvement in CFT, but all also all the other excellent stuff you do in terms of promoting lots of the same things that that, that I'm trying to promote, trying to promote in terms of a communication based um, approach uh, and person centered approach to, to musculoskeletal pain. And, and so I thought a good place to start is just by you describing yourself and your academic and clinical background. Yeah, uh, I think actually it's 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 a good place to start as well because, uh, as you know, I think uh, our journey seems to sort of form maybe how we end up um, approaching patients and 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 what we do. So. I actually uh, trained in uh, Newcastle, uh, uh, did my bachelor there uh, back in 1993. Uh, so that was my first exposure to the to the English physiotherapy world. Mm. Uh, I had a bit of a struggle, obviously, in the beginning with uh, learning everything in uh, in uh, a different language. But yeah. but I also think it made me very adamant to to sort of know my stuff so so it was uh, I, I took it as a challenge but but i really enjoyed it um and quite early during that work uh, already in my first and second year i really liked the idea of examining patients uh getting to a kind of hypothesis of what you were thought was going on so that uh, sort of examination manual testing if you like that was very much something that I early on liked a lot. Uh, and I also found myself uh, really enjoying um, being with with patients, so communicating with patients. So, so that was uh, the early introduction. Um, 
And then as I got back to Norway, I, I did uh, kind of a similar to what would be a rotation in, in, in England. So I worked through a, a big hospital here in Bergen and uh, had uh, different placements around the hospital and ended up in uh, neuro neurology. Um, and I think that's kind of relevant as well, because uh, in neurology at that time, there was a uh, focus on, on bow bath. I don't know if you know the yeah. familiar with the bow. Yeah. So, so they were uh, kind of early uh, people that, that looked at uh, how the neurological, like a stroke, how that would affect the quality of how a patient's move and behaves and, and, and do functional tasks. So, so I think that kind of uh, made me uh, aware of the functional screening, if you like, and, and having your eyes as your guide to, to how you sort of experiment with the patient. Um, which is different from uh, a neurological condition is different maybe from from a back pain problem, but but at the same time they they share similarities in compensatory uh, behaviors. I think. Yeah. Uh, so uh, that because I was already then adamant to becoming a manual therapist, I then looked around because there was no manual therapy degree in Norway at the time. So I looked to, uh, to uh, Australia uh, because I'd been reading some of the early work on of Bob Aldi um, and also Max Sussman. And mm -hmm. uh, because they were located in Perth, that's where I went <laughs> eventually then, uh, which was a, co a coincidence as well, because that's where I got in touch with uh, Peter O'Sullivan for the first time. Um, and although he wasn't uh, leading uh, the musculoskeletal division at that time, he was involved in the in the sports masters. Uh, he had a fair bit of um, teaching for for our group, and uh, for some reason, he then, after his PhD, finished in uh, 1997, I think. Uh, he came to Norway to do. Uh, courses here in Norway, and I rocked up on the first course, uh, the second course, the third course, and and, and at, uh, at, that, at that point was he still quite kind of biomechanically focused and kind of you know course to be that because he can he's, he's transitioned quite a bit, hasn't he? Yeah, he has, and and it's it's kind of interesting because I kind of know the the backstory of this because uh, his early work was definitely. I mean, it was a called core stability of or transversus abdominals uh, exercise for, for back pain. Uh, but there's a few things that I'm not sure people are familiar with because he was working with a specific population of uh, spondylolisthesis group. Uh, so so that that's not your your average back pain population. So so he was targeting that towards them. But at the same time, I think although it wasn't described in this early work, it was a, a very much a, an early version CFT, if you like, already back then. Uh, and and uh, the thing I really admire about Peter is that he's later gone on and said, well, we called it stability back then. And, and that was probably not a, a good choice of words. So he, he kind of let research dictate his his views, which is I think is something we should all yeah, aspire to, yeah. uh, and and be willing to change uh, our biases uh, depending on what what research shows. Uh, and he's definitely one of the 
I would say, great people to look up to in, in that respect. He's, uh, he's changing all the time and he's trying to evolve and, and really looking at it from a scientific point of view, I would say. So uh, that was kind of the background of, of how I got into uh, get in touch with him and it was uh, then because the early work that he'd done he then wanted to look to see if uh, where can we evolve in this uh, process and and what would be the next stage uh, of development um, and as you may already know then he was uh, uh, Wim Dankertz uh, was his first uh, PhD student so he'd already done a lot of work on on uh, sort of the hypothesis behind the what was then called the classification system or later referred to as a stratification system uh, and and they've done um, uh, sort of biomechanically uh, orientated studies uh, trying to see the differentiation between the different characteristics of of how uh, patients uh, move sit and 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 do things what an incredible I want to say coincidence, you ended up going to Perth and, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. and to, to be part of such a, I don't want to call it a movement, that's, that's the wrong, but you're such a, such an incredible kind of a way of practicing MSK and manual therapy or, um, yeah. which, which is probably the most cogent or the most coherent kind of theory, if you like, of, of practice. It seems to join many of the dots that we've all been kind of trying to juggle the bio, the psycho, the social, and kind of see how do these things fit together, but at least you know at least from my point of view it seems to make perfect or you know very good sense as a way of practicing absolutely and and obviously uh, and, and this should probably be declared early on as well i i'm aware that i'm i'm biased in a sense that this is <laughs> this is what i do this is what i teach and and so so i i think that's fair to declare but but your rct hopefully isn't biased <laughs> No, no, you're right. <laughs> uh, uh, obviously, uh, so so that's why we do RCTs yeah. and, and try to figure out these things. But but at the same time, I think we're uh, continuously saying that uh, more evidence is needed, and and you've alerted to this in, in some of your work as well. Like, how do you uh, sort of combine the the quantitative work with the qualitative work? It all depends on the questions you're asking and 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 what kind of information you're trying to get out there. So so it's a, a continuous journey and. Um, I think uh, the other thing that I really like about the process is that it's it's not ex because I I really don't like the professional boundary <laughs> sort of discussions. I, I I think we should sort of all it's a bit like now for the corona we should all pull in the same direction because we're all interlinked. So so if we can sort of uh, which is why I love the work that you've been doing because it, it's sort of uh, it has its own it come from from your side but still it, it sort of fits in well with uh, it's like a I tend to think of it as a funnel it's, it's like you have different professions but if they follow the evidence you'll see that we're actually getting closer to each other in a sense because the evidence should should guide our practice and, yeah. and that should be the same whether you're an osteopath or a manual therapist or a chiropractor or something like that which i think is really beautiful uh, yeah you, you would hope that the evidence just breaks down these kind of rigid identities which are just kind of yeah. social kind of professional constructs yeah. and and yeah. if we're all utilizing the same evidence then exactly. largely we should be approaching patients or practice in, in a very similar way exactly and of course you can talk about different levels of competency in delivering this care so if you're a gp and you have a, a lot of other things you need to be good at then maybe your 
competency should allow you to recognize things, but not necessarily be the sole provider of that care, if you like. Yeah. This is where I think that there are beautiful opportunities for for uh, sort of collaborations in, in primary health care that I think is is not has not been explored well enough uh, at the current time. That's my sort of feeling. And so getting back to CFT, and, and it's a really good place to start um, because... Yeah. It's so it's so contemporary. It's 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 you know, pretty well evidenced. But you're you're right. You know, more evidence always be needed. Um, but what the yeah. thing I really like about it is that it's it's and it seems like it's been it, what's developed this idea, this developed this theory is lots of different types of research. So there's been trials to look at its efficacy that you've been involved with. There's qualitative yeah. work, which has informed yeah. some of the components, you know, making sense and, and various other aspects. So it's it really is something that's been kind of built up from the evidence, but probably started with, as you said, kind of Peter's initial observations and experiences all those years ago. No. Uh, and, and that's, I think a great point because it's, it's, a uh, it's a collaborative effort of, of, of Peter, Wim, uh, uh, JP, there's uh, Sam Bunsley, there's uh, Kieran O'Sullivan, Mary O'Keefe, there's, there's so many, Casper, Usting, and, and I hope I, I'm not, but they're all in the, in that pain ed group with, with different collaborations. And, and it's really, as you say, it's, it's a, it's a joint effort. I, I would probably say that, uh, Peter is, is a very important sort of, uh, uh, person in that whole, because he, he kind of have that, uh, great overview that he, that he has and, and, uh, obviously has a, it's like he's running on on several engines at the yeah, same time, yeah. if you like. <laughs> so it's uh, yeah. Because my experience is, I'll a paper will appear in a journal. Let's say there's a, a quality of paper, usually, and I God, that's such a good paper. And then I eventually, yeah. and then I see that it sits. For example, Sam Samantha Bunsey's work around sense making, yeah. and oh, that so that seems to yeah. fit in the CFT model. But even as a standalone kind of paper itself, it's 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 brilliant, or as a yeah, kind of collection of papers, and then it appears in the model. So it's just. Yeah, it's, it's in these whether it's Mary O'Keefe or you or, or Kieran, these things kind of just appear in these journals, and they all seem to fit together into this, to, you know, yeah. to, to to form a much bigger, bigger kind of uh, theory, which is which is brilliant. Yeah, and I think as you said, that that's a lot. Of, a lot of that is is credit to to Pete's sort of vision, I think, as mm. well, and understanding of of uh, of the whole uh, situation. So maybe we can just start for the listeners that maybe aren't familiar with CFT. If you just yeah. just walk us through kind of kind of briefly what what it is and how how you describe it. Yeah. So so uh, depends how far I think we should go back because we we've talked about it uh, from the early work of, of, of Pete and 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 Wim Dankets and and my work and Kieran's work and uh, so so I think uh, it kind of started as as that hypothesis back then classification system where you looked at uh, certain characteristics that, that the patients had and, and then you sort of delivered care based on that characteristics. Uh, the, the difficulty I think lies, whether you use stratification or classification, is that it's the word in itself can have um, a backfiring effect eventually because we, we obviously knew back then that no patients are alike. So if you look at classifications from something where you put people in a box, that's how it was seen at that time. You box people in and that's, that's kind of, you, you, you're in that box and that's why you get this care. But 
but I, I guess later we kind of moved away from that and, and the word stratification came up and you say, well, so you can have a group of people with certain sort of movement characteristics. Uh, they can have risk profiles, whether it's stress, sleep, anxiety, social network, uh, and, and lack of these. So, so you see these profiles that you're making, which means that you can, you're not boxing people in, but you're still sort of, they're, they're following a strata, if you like. Right. Um, and, uh, and then we kind of the later version, I would say, as you're probably familiar with, we, we call it now a, a framework, a clinical reasoning framework, which I think makes much more sense because then that means you can look at, at certain strata for, for certain factors, but you can also see that there's a big variation in, in how they respond to their uh, factors and, and coping mechanisms. And obviously uh, your communication will be different with somebody who's very anxious and frightened and fear avoidant uh, as opposed to somebody who's not. So, so you'll have to do this more person-centered approach as you were alerting to in the beginning. So the, the early work was, was much more focused on the, I would say it had, it had the, the biopsychosocial model there, but it, it if you look at how the papers was framed, it was more the, the maladaptive movement behaviors. It was a lot in to do with that, uh, back in sort of the Pete's paper back in 2005, the maladaptive, yeah. uh, the diagnosis. And, um, so, um, then uh, when I did my PhD, it was kind of a tricky thing to, first of all, find a word that you felt was describing the the approach right because cft sounds a lot like cbt but it's it's like you just there's a little change in the middle there but but i would say they're quite different it also sounds like cst or cranial sacral therapy yeah yeah <laughs> exactly uh so so wording is usually difficult i guess and i think this is something else uh, i mean obviously you as a researcher you know this because once you project something out there, it has to have a, uh, you have to market it kind of a way so people recognize, okay, yeah, that's CFT. I, I know what that is. I read those papers, right? So, but at the same time, you're saying that what you called CFT in 2010 may not yeah. be the same as what you call uh, how you project CFT in 2020, right? Yeah. With the evolving evidence and, and how you put things uh, in there. So, so. I really like the way of, uh, and, and excuse me if I'm jumping a little bit here, but if, if I'm supposed to try and explain it, I think the idea, and, and, and you probably read some of this work, like, like tell me your story. That, that's the starting question of, of how you approach somebody. Um, uh, and really that's to let the patient dictate uh, where they want to sort of project their uh, the reason why they come to see you. Right. And, and it's, it's not, I think the reason for opening up that way is that you're not just saying, tell me where your pain is, or tell me what, what things you can't do right now, but you're trying to get a grip of where has this led this patient down the path that we're seeing them at the moment, which, um, may go back many years and, and uh, also go back with who they've seen, what they've been told to do, what they've been told not to do, all these kind of things. So I think getting uh, the individual's perspective uh, 
of their problem is really vital for a start. And that would differ from more traditional forms of practice where it's like you said, it's about the therapist or practitioner being directing the conversation towards areas which they're interested in and probably narrowing down or, or trying to pin down particular symptoms and locations of pain. Whereas the tell me your story approach is it just opens it right up, doesn't it? To, to the, exactly. to the patient, they can take it wherever they want. Exactly. I mean, I, I think in fairness, some people would probably say listening to this, that, well, other forms of therapy have done this as well. Like they've asked people about their background, their upbringing, if you look at C, uh, CBT, traditional CBT, or, or other form of, of psychodynamic approaches or behavioral approaches, they've, they maybe have looked into that. But I think if we look at it from the musculoskeletal point of view, I think it's, it's kind of novel in that respect. But mm. I apologize if I offend somebody by saying that, but, but I think, um, getting to because we we were oh, a lot of people in musculoskeletal healthcare they've been trained to this what's your symptom what's the symptom uh, behavior where do you have pain uh like like we're also what dermatomes is it following yeah. and and so so this anatomical uh sort of uh clinical reasoning or or pattern recognition if you like that's that's very deep in our our teaching and and thinking so, so by just taking a more wider approach, uh, you're opening up, as you say, for the patient to to explore uh, where they want to start. Although I must say, some patients will start like way back or or with other things, but some people will start because they think that's what you want to hear. You see the yeah. the the discrepancy there. So so I mean, it, but but even if they do, then at least it's their choice to start there rather mm. than saying where do you have pain, right? So so I think it that opening is is quite important for for showing the the person in front of you that I I really want to try to to get to know you and learn as much as I can about you uh, of of your story, if you like. Yeah, and then. Uh, as with any approach, we, we couldn't get by uh, the importance of trying to rule out the, the, the dangerous stuff like the red flags disorders. And, and so therefore, obviously, uh, that part of it is, is up there as well. Um, so then you could argue that how good are we really to, to figure out red flags? There is some conflicting evidence there that uh, we we may not be so good as as we think. And and some of the things we've been taught, like uh, night pain and and uh, uh, constant pain and, and fever and some of these things. I mean, some of them are are pretty specific and and sensible, but but others are not. And that's also due to the fact that. Uh, sort of red flags uh, sort of research, it's very difficult to mm -hmm. do because it's so rare. Like mm -hmm. if you were doing, a, if you spend two years uh, getting enough patients for an RCT, then you probably spend 20 years or 25 years to get enough people into a, yeah. a, a red flags uh, sort of prospective study, right? So so it's, it's a bit it's a bit tricky there, but, but obviously that's um, important and and with that also not just the, the the dangerous stuff but also the specific diagnosis that we have right so 
a specific nerve root compression with with um, uh, dermatomal pattern or or a pattern if you like that fits with a clinic and and evidence from say uh, objective measures uh, MRI or CT scan that that follows that. Um, and then obviously we have to uh, figure out uh, what kind of person do we have in front of us in terms of what kind of stage is this? Is this acute, subacute, or, or recurrent? Is it chronic, um, persistent? So, so that follows this sort of triage of of um, uh, determining some of these factors. Putting kind of red flags and pathology aside, in terms of yeah. in terms of back pain, we are left with kind of non-specific back pain or back pain with some neurological component, as you said, nerve root compression, kind of frank, kind of myotomal stuff. The the CFT approach, the tell me your story um, starting point, that applies to, to both those types, right? So whether it's kind yeah. of frank, yeah, it does. kind of neuro or just kind of much more um, disc- uh, vague, non-specific stuff. Yeah. And, and I think that's an important point you're bringing up there because it, it's – I mean, I, we can still have a role, and I, th- I think some of those tell me your story about what, what's going on in your life, like at the moment and, and stuff like that, is is important even for the specific diagnosis, yeah. right? So, so if, if you have a if you have a, a, a discogenic pain with nerve root compression, and and you haven't you've slept four hours a night uh, over the last three or four months prior to that occurring. Then I would say that's pretty relevant for yeah. for that condition, even though you're not saying well. It happened because you didn't sleep enough, but but you're trying to get the perspective of what was the allostatic load on that person uh, during that time or, or leading up to that time, which is what we see quite frequently, that, that somebody, they have a minor strain or a minor cascading into all of these things. So So quite often we can't really explain the current situation from just the I bent down to to, to tie my shoelaces kind of thing. Mm. Uh, so so you see these things. So that so that's important even for for the the specific diagnosis as well as for the non-specific. But also I think there is a misconception that CFT is 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 only for uh, persistent and and chronic pain. But I would say it's as important for acute pain because the 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 messages that you're bringing across to an acute pain condition can can also influence the trajectory of the recurrence of that condition right although yeah. i would say w- the data to support this is is as with lots of things not maybe as strong yet but but that would be uh, another point that's really important to to figure out i guess how 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 does how does how is the trajectory influenced by by the early sort of management um of that condition and it i guess it'd be really hard to a trajectory would be informed by a whole load of things right but you know kind of social circumstances kind of previous clinicians genetic factors all all that kind of stuff but it it wouldn't be unreasonable to say that not giving patients a voice and putting them in kind of very structural biomechanical boxes is not going to probably put them on a good trajectory it's not going to be helpful so you're right we haven't no. there isn't that clear kind of evidence that support that kind of causative direction but you would but it would be perfectly kind of reasonable to think that describing things yeah. to patients in really kind of structural ways not giving them space or voice to to kind of for their story to emerge yeah. I, I can't see how that might i can't see in what reality that would be helpful for anyone no, and 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 you could you could counter argue as well. Well, if we looked at the biomedical model, though, it's definitely not 
cured the the emerging sort yeah. of explosion of of musculoskeletal care like it, it's not it's not done well no no for so no. so it's up there for discussion and i was just I, I didn't read all of it, but I just read, uh, I got hold of some old uh, Louis Gifford work where he talked about uh, uh, the McKenzie model and, and, and the advice that was given uh, avoiding flexion and stuff like that. And, and even he was back then talking about uh, iatrogenic factors mm. of, of those, that kind of mentality. So, and, and I think Louis Gifford should definitely be mentioned as a very early yeah. important uh clinician i think to to sort of have this view of the of the biopsychosocial model and and the mature organism model as i'm sure you're familiar yeah. with and, and uh, some of his work so yeah and so so going from the tell me your story kind of opener with patients what, what are some of the other key kind of principles or components of of cft which seem to transcend whether it's persistent you know, chronic pain or more acute pain, because there are some, my sense are that there are just, there are some general principles, which, which yeah. are, which, which will be really useful for clinicians, I think. Yeah. So, so I think, uh, obviously your story is not, uh, that's, that's not, a, it's a good, it's a good starting point, yeah. but it, but it needs something more than that. And, and, but at the same time, I, I, I think it was JP who said this once, like he, he, he felt he was asked about communication and he said, the minute I understood that the less I talk, the more info I'm getting is kind of a, because quite often we feel that we have to be so good at, uh, at saying the right things at the mm -hmm. right time, which sure, yes, we may have to, but, but at the same time, I think the, the listening part takes you uh, quite a long way as well with, um, with uh, just uh, listening to the patient. Um, so, so, uh, then obviously, uh, getting to the core of, uh, what kind of things is it that patients are struggling with at the moment? So the question about, um, what would you do differently tomorrow if you had uh, no pain or less pain, right? What, what could you do tomorrow? Uh, which kind of highlights where they see themselves as not, uh, living their potential or, mm. or living a, a fulfilling life. So, um, that's part of the story in there. And, and of course you want to know about maybe some of the pain features. We're not, we're not saying that you should not know about that. So whether you think it's a more, uh, you can have questions around whether you think it's more nociceptive or neuropathic or nociplastic or, or, or getting a mixture of those. So that's kind of a, uh, and I'm thinking in terms of, uh, does mechanical behavior sort of alter the, the 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 pain sensation that can be a clue to to some things but but obviously these things are are not straightforward all the time mm -hmm. uh, also i think the the use of the orbro screening questionnaire which we've done for for a long time where you sort of get a feel of of uh, how people are coping what their sleep is like how stressed they are uh, their belief uh, in terms of um, uh, whether they think they can get well from this condition, so their coping behaviors and, and things like that. Uh, and I would say the reason why I think that's very, very smart is also because when you do that kind of pain profiling, uh, risk profiling form, 
I think it allows you to invite yourself into the conversation with the patient. So I would get them to fill that out and then I will have it on the side of what I'm writing or if I'm taking notes and then I'll, I'll look down and I'll, if they scored, say, I can't sleep very well. I say, I see you scored such and such on sleep. Would you like to tell me more about it? So it kind of invites mm. you into that conversation without coming across as a psychotherapist, yeah. if you like. I, I mean, because people can have perceptions of what seeing an osteopath or a manual therapy is. And if you ask them about other stuff outside that, they, they can get um, hesitant. So but if they have filled it out, I think that opens up for a, for a, a difference in how you approach that conversation. So I've, I've really good um, uh, experiences with, with using the Orbro screening form. And I think, I think with, with any screening form, that, that it's, the misconception is that whether it's Startback or, or the Ribru, that it's this rigid kind of tool that you just patients fill in it, as you, as we were saying, it kind of classifies them as being, you know, a score or, or highly disabled exactly. and then treatment yeah. just follows from the, from the seven out of 10 number. Exactly. But I think how you described it is really good. It's, it's a way of kind of guiding conversation. It gives you an insight yeah. and you sit down with the patient together and maybe kind of, yeah. you know, talk through some of the, the salient points, which they, as you said, which they, which they alerted you to, or they kind of decided yeah. to, 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 to indicate. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and this is what Stephen Linton would, would suggest as well, is that particularly. So if you look at the, the sum score for the Orobro, he's not saying, well, you should, uh, the cutoff is, is 50 or 40, depending on, on what papers you read. But, but it's not about saying, oh, you have a high risk of becoming uh, sick listed for this. It's about taking the individual scores and kind of using that as asterisk signs, if you like, to, to, to address some of the, the, the challenges that they are reporting. Um, and, and this has shown that, yeah, you can be good at this without using a, uh, I mean, some people say, yeah, but I managed to ask those questions anyway, but I think you kind of, <laughs> you could, uh, also overstate your own, uh, mm-hmm. confidence in some of those areas. So I think having it is at least it's making you more certain that it's, it's covered there. Uh, but of course, again, how you use it is, 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 a uh, an individual based kind of thing as well. So if, if you just score it, but don't use it, then I, yeah. I think it has possibly little or no value. It's like mixed methods in a way that you yeah, just, yeah, it, it it, this kind of qualitative conversation, which occurs after them completing a, a largely kind of quantitative tool, it begins yeah. to add kind of meat and flesh to these kind of statistical or numerical scores. Um, and it might be the case that they're, that, you know, item, whatever, six that they, they indicated, by having a conversation around that gives you a completely different perspective on that item. And it, it might yeah. mean something different to so it addresses some of the, it's much more pragmatic and address some of the limitations I think with the tools. Exactly. And so, so that's kind of the, the using the, the Orobro for the, for the yellow flags, uh, sort of more typically yellow flags. Uh, and then obviously asking questions around uh, work related factors, if, if that's relevant, uh, other lifestyles factors that, that can be, uh, very relevant as well. And so I think the, the question I was going to ask is what there's such an emphasis on, on listening. So everything we've talked about so far in relation to CFT is all yeah. not, uh, well, not just listening, but it's all about communication, which is why you're on, the, which why you're on the show, but what's, you know, yeah. what, it, you know, it's not, it's obvious to us 
why why communication listening plays such a crucial role but there'll be yeah. clinicians out there manual therapists and msk therapists that, that will that won't be readily apparent you know the, the the emphasis of their skills will be there might be some listening and some kind of you know talking but it'll be kind of technique and and you know touching or prescribing exercise so what's the why why the focus on on communication so i think the the first part is that if you listen the chances are that you're able to validate their experience is like 100% greater like if 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 they feel that you've listened and and you've stopped and used summaries and reflections that person is going to think he really gets me like that that's that's just a no brainer like like so so that whole idea of, of getting them to tell their story by listening and, and reflecting and, and sort of sitting with them, I think is, is the best way to create the, that alliance where that person is feeling, I truly believe that you understand my situation. So I think that's, that's the main major point. Because that will also guide you to where you want to do your examination. Because Again, we've been trained, and I, I remember this from, I did some uh, CBT back in, in 2012, and, and some of the things we were told there was to film myself with patients. And it was it was horrible to watch myself barge in with the sort of, as soon as they said something about the symptoms, I would say, yeah, it's because, because, because. Mm. So, so I was so sort of evolved in that process where that pattern recognition allows me to tell them what their problem is, you see, which yeah. is ridiculous if you think about it, because who am I like to, the audacity to <laughs> tell somebody in pain what their pain is, is, is just ridiculous, which is what I think Gillette Belton, which you're probably familiar with as well, uh, says a lot about like the audacity that people sort of, you go to a course and you, and you learn about explaining pain and you take somebody's experience and you have the audacity to tell them, this is why you have your pain, right? You'd hope that it comes from a position of wanting to help, though. I, I think that we've all been on courses, Absolutely. haven't we? Courses when we, we, you know, on the weekend we've learned a certain approach or technique. Monday comes, and every every patient that we see gets that gets that new technique or or, yeah. or, or approach, and it's often and we're often really enthusiastic to sh- to show these new skills and to to let them kind of play out. But it's um, but you're right, it, it's it yeah. kind of relegates uh, the patient's experience yeah. and, and and their voice. It's a great point, and I, I um, thank you for bringing that up because obviously everyone does, I would say, their best uh, all the time. And, they, and that's why if we talk about changing a paradigm from one to the other, I think it's important not to sort of come across as you're bashing something else. You're just trying to make, to have a conversation about can we collectively find better ways to deal with these things rather than say you following the biomedical model and, and you're in, that's wrong because I say so or something like that, that's, that's never going to lead to anything good, I think. But, but so definitely not uh, uh, bashing anyone with, with how they approach. But I, I think with everyone sort of, or a, a lot of people seems to be at the idea that communication is important. But then if you think about the amount of time that was spent in the cur- curriculum, mm. whether it was on bachelor or master's level, actually teaching or communication it's like non-existent almost i wouldn't say non-existent now because it's it's getting better but whether it's motivational interviewing socratic questioning uh, acceptance and commitment therapy and these things I, th- I think they're all great tools and 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 approaches that can be 
incorporated into this uh, line of thinking. Uh, and, and we definitely sort of highlighted the use of, of uh, motivational interviewing, uh, which is a great tool or understanding that tool is great for how you can sort of practice becoming better at uh, how you listen and mm. what kind of reflective questioning you're doing, whether you're using simple or complex reflections, how you use summaries. Uh, it can be the, the, the how you roll with resistance. So mm. rather than sort of uh, jump in and, and try to convince people you're, you're more lenient in, or the, the rolling with resistance, you're just sitting with them and, and you're trying to, to really get to grips with their own motivation for change. Uh, and a lot of that is 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 backed up by the evidence, particularly in um, motivational interviewing has been used a lot for for addictional ad, addiction. Yeah. Uh, I think there's over 200 RCTs and something like that. So so it's really um, uh, I don't think it's as well documented for musculoskeletal conditions, uh, but but um, certainly one of the communicative uh, tools, I think that, that is well worth looking into. So that's that's part of the, the CFT as well. Um, you could argue that CFT uh, sort of is a hybrid model. Like, like it's not a confined, you don't say, oh, you should only use uh, motivational interviewing or you should only use this or that. I think you, it, it sort of opens up, and, th and this is again why I think uh, a clinical reasoning framework allows for that because you can use uh, you can have a motivational interviewing focused with somebody but maybe acceptance and commitment would would be more applicable to someone else so so again you're kind of uh, opening up for this dynamic flexibility in in how you approach these things and in terms of the other skills so i think what i'm thinking about what i've thought about is that cft as, as I said, seems like a really kind of co uh, coherent kind of model of practicing. Mm. Mm. Um, but where I'm not, so I'm thinking about people that do lots of manual therapy and those manual therapy skills yeah. are, are, they feel that they're really important. That's the first thing they've been doing them for many yeah. years. They've invested time, money, yeah. all that kind of stuff, trying to um, develop those and yeah. trying to get those people on board with, with CFT does it mean relinquishing those skills that they cherish? What role does, does, does to manual therapy skills have within CFT? My sense is, and talking to people that have been on, on the workshop with you guys and, and Peter, yeah. is that yeah. there's some hesitancy about being explicit about manual therapy in CFT, yeah. that um, maybe Peter's a little bit reticent about using it for various reasons. And and I just, and you're obviously, your, your, your recent RCT looked at uh, the three-year follow-up with yeah. CFT compared to manual therapy slash exercise or, yeah. and so, so I think the first question was where do manual therapy skills sit if at all within a CFT approach? Yeah. And is that beyond just kind of reassuring touch and guiding movement? Yeah. Second one is tied to your RCT. It, it seems like it was an either or, either or CFT or manual therapy exercise and say something about what, yeah. It could just be all of it. You can incorporate both those other interventions and CFT. So start with the first one about why manual therapists should do CFT and, and how we might persuade them. Yeah. So so I think uh, going, it's a great question. It's a bit, it's kind of a big question, but, <laughs> but it's a great, or, or two, two great questions. I saw, I, think, I, saw, I saw how much time we had and I thought I've got to get these questions in. <laughs> uh, 
but but I think uh, the first question, or, or related to the first question, is asking ourselves: Are we really happy with what, what do we actually define by manual therapy? Because manual therapy is often defined as you you push on a muscle or a joint or or trying to make this neurophysiological response from a very specific directional or or amplitude or, or whatever. It, it, it's very specific. And I think that notion of sort of either moving tissue or, or uh, influencing tissue in, in, a, in a sustained way is pretty well documented is not occurring, right? So, so from that perspective, you could say, well, there's, there's no evidence to say that you're really changing a lot of structure within, within the tissue from our hands, right? But I would say overarchingly, I really like, Pete's word where he said, uh, your hand should be uh, supportive rather than corrective. And I think that opens up for a much wider use of, of the word uh, uh, manual therapy, because that means that, yes, you can touch people and you can even be specific about where you want to, like how you touch people, whether it's, it's a um, uh, mobilization of a certain place or, or uh, if you do a manipulation. I guess the problem with with that approach, if it doesn't change the long-term or if we don't have evidence that it changes long-term behavior, then we should ask ourselves, what, when, so when I do a manual, specific manual therapy to a patient and they feel better from a neuromuscular or a neurophysiological effect, what other uh, what other things am I also communicating? Do you understand what I mean? So, so, so I can have a modulatory effect in one sense, but without saying, I can also project that you need this to be done by me in this way. So I'm creating dependency from that patient. So I, I think my point on that is that I'm not a, I'm not a really enjoying the hands-on, hands-off debate. But I would say. If I do hands-on treatment, then I would always uh, like to think that that's sort up with some form of uh, behavior adaptation or, or uh, whether it's exercise or activity plan or something they, they need to do that will sort of continue that uh, neurophysiological response, if you like. Yeah. So, so if I, so if me and you or, or, or did something to say the, the lower back, then that wouldn't be standalone treatment. And I think not, I'm not sure to, I'm still wondering, I don't know how many people who does that today. If you do that today, you're just giving standalone treatment as a manual therapist. You're, you're not, you haven't really followed uh, what's been going on for the last 10 or 15 years, I would say. But, but um, so, but then that's, there's also, sort of challenges with that because people i would say if you give somebody manual therapy man, hands-on treatment and then hand them a sheet with exercises that was sort of pre pre-printed if you like yeah th this is the exercise you do you could claim from your own sake yeah i'm also giving exercise to that patient for that but i would argue that that's not necessarily what i'm saying it's it's trying to follow it up to something that's linked to their uh, dis or their functional lack of capacity, if you like. So if they lack the ability to flex or to extend or to lift or to bend, 
then that should be the exercises. And then you can say, well, there's many ways you can do that. You can do that through a graduated exposure model where you start uh, small and go bigger and heavier and, and more uh, uh, intense. So, so there's plenty of ways you can do that. But, but I would just say that the reasoning would have to follow that approach. I hope that answers the yeah. first part of the question. Yeah, I, yeah? I, I think so. I think it's, it's not necessary. It's the, I think the skills don't necessarily get relinquished or jettisoned with CFT, but rather no. pro probably some of the ideas do though, right? So some of the theories yeah. around, around yeah. the techniques, they have to go because they, they just contradict completely the, yeah. the main kind of premises around CFT, but the actual technical skills perhaps can remain within the framework of CFT. Yeah. And also I think if you look at maniotherapy as, as the examination, like if, if I look at maniotherapy as a, a way of assessing sensitivity in the tissue, more as opposed to does L5 move on L4, if you like. Uh, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, so maniotherapy examination is a lot about sensitivity testing of the tissue or, or that person's condition, right? So, so we don't want to say that, that, that that's absolutely not obsolete, but, but then you can say, is that more important to, to poke somebody's L5 than to actually check through the behavioral experiments what they can't or can do, right? So, so somebody could say, well, you didn't do the specific um, manual testing, but then I would say, yeah, but they told me they couldn't bend. So I said, I would rather spend more time behaviorally trying to understand what was the problem with bending as opposed to poking L5. So it's finding that balance between the two, I think, is, is uh, because at one then you could say, if you say, well, all manual therapy is good and it can just be, be uh, sort of combined with CFT or the other uh, like part of the approach, then I think a lot of people will see that, all right, so I can just keep doing what I'm doing. And that's not necessarily what we're saying. We're saying, think about how you use your hands deliberately, and then you can see whether you can combine that with some of the other stuff. And, and it's, it's through your clinical reasoning, you have to decide how much of it should be sort of hands-on, like, like what's the right place for that, as opposed to other things you want to do in that uh, uh, management plan. Yeah, yeah, and that makes perfect sense. And I think I was just going to say that it, it part of the tell me your story, I suppose, would what would emerge from that discussion might be patients' values, preferences, exactly. those kind of things. And exactly. and to say if the back of oh, I'm really interested in your story, and their story involves a preference uh, for some of these techniques, and then say, well, you're not getting any of those. Sorry, they're, 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 you know, they're, they're not <laughs> effective, or you know, they're not reliable, that kind of stuff. I think you miss an opportunity where, and I, I've said this before, exactly. where you kind of maybe you, you know, you do kind of hold your nose a bit and do some of these techniques to to, to develop that relationship, develop that trust that they that you have listened to those preferences, and then phase them out. You know, you constantly phase them out as as you go along. Yeah, and and I guess uh, this is some of the hard questions we don't discuss too much. I think in in courses as well, like if somebody comes in and, and they say, "I want needles here, there, and there," or "I want the CT two to be manipulated in in uh, left sideband or whatever," uh, it, it's really how do you stand in those situations, mm. and and how do you manage to be a good communicator uh, in that sense where you're not trying not to lose 
um, uh, that uh, connection with the patient. So the second part of your question, so that's comparing uh, the CFT to the manual therapy and exercise. So, so first of all, uh, I think it's probably worth for listeners to say that this was a pragmatic trial, which, uh, as you know, some people are a fan of, other people's are maybe not. So I guess there's difference. Uh, and what I mean by that is that uh, in both groups, uh, based on the examination of, of the patient, uh, the CFT therapist could deliver care based on the, the sort of package that's in CFT and, and uh, equally based on, on the patient's examination, the, the manual therapist could then deliver the manual therapy and exercise as indicated uh, for that condition. I think that's just uh, maybe important to say as a startup. Um, and the choice of that sort of the reason for that is obviously it, it's it's uh, it's much more in line with what goes on in the clinic. And, and this is where research sometimes get refuted because they say, well, it's, it was experimental. It's not what we do in clinic. So therefore, I, I see no value in your results. But at least here we say, well, we, we try to mimic what, what goes on in, in practical terms. Um, of course, within that is the difficulty with when you assess the effect, you don't know how much of the effect was the uh, sort of the, the behavior experiment, say for the CFT group, how much was the effect of the communication, how much was the exact effect of um, of other things going on in that scenario. So, so we only know that that package delivered that effect and the empty uh, exercise package delivered that effect. Um, we did uh, uh, sort of uh, check what what kind of care was delivered, and and in some of the later trials now, it's the the attrition to protocol or or uh, how will be even more important. And and as you well uh, are aware of, I'm sure, getting uh, actually accessing whether the patient has received. The, the treatment that was deemed for that arm is is a challenge in itself uh, for any RCT. Um, but uh, so I would say that the difference between the two was obviously that that uh, we had this uh, management plan, and you can say that followed the the, the known what we later called uh, making sense out of pain. So when you listen to the story, you've done all the uh, the screening for red flags, you assess the yellow flags, you assess the lifestyle factors, the work factors. Uh, together with the patient, you then come up with a, a plan or, or a making sense out of pain where you sit together with them in a collaborative manner, uh, trying to, so you're, so basically when you, you say wrap up the the session, you will go through these different factors and, and list them and then suggest how this could have influenced their condition. And you'll turn to the patient and say, does this ring resonate with you? And they're, they're in a collaborative manner then allowed to, to um, reflect on that and agree or disagree, obviously. And, and I think that's important as well, because Otherwise, it would be dumb that somebody has 20 years of, of pain and within a couple of hours, you've suddenly sort of mapped out their life in, in a, in a two-hour session and, and, and being able to, or one, one hour, or depending whether you finish the first or the second time. 
knowing exactly what goes on. So that's why I think it's it's uh, trying to find a common narrative through that uh, making sense out of pain. That then leads over to the plan, which goes into trying to expose them to the, the things that are challenging, whether that's playing with the kids, taking up their old uh, sports of running or playing football or, or soccer um, or uh, some other form of uh, physical uh, or functional activity at work or at home. Uh, the plan is based on that. So you expose them to those um, uh, those uh, functions, if you like, in a in a controlled manner. Um, and then other lifestyle factors that are deemed necessary will be the the third part of that, where you look into. Um, sleep habits, uh, exercise uh, regimen, or, or because some people will have a boom and bust cycle, as you know, they they don't do anything and then they feel better one day and they go for a massive hike or overdo it or, or something like that. So, so trying to learn them about pacing, uh, it can be uh, stress management, how they uh, deal with with so really trying to tie it all together in in those three um, uh, domains, if you like, which then is uh, the whole point is is trying to make them uh, more um, self managed, if you like, or or increase their self efficacy. Yeah, and, and then so is it is it possible that so that the manual therapy that manual therapy and exercise bled into the CFT group? So. Or whether those delivering the CFT purposely excluded those interventions from their their, their yeah. So so some of the people were getting some manual therapy in the in the CFT group for some of the hmm. some of the patients, but it was a very uh, it was less than than in the okay. other group. So I would say most patients were getting manual therapy in the manual therapy group. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember the exact percentage, but it was like uh, in the 80s or 90s, more than 90. Um, and and also, I think the exercise weren't giving specifically to their functional uh, lack of capacity, if you like, whereas it was in the CFT group. So it was like a red thread going through those uh, domains that I explained yeah. uh, in, in that group. So we also had a look at, and, and patient satisfaction is another interesting factor because it, during the, the, the period of time that, that patients were attended to, they seemed to be quite happy. Like they were, uh, uh, if you're attended to and somebody listened to you and give you care and so on, a lot of studies show that you are satisfied. But the change happened one year later. So you saw that if you were in the CFT group back to doing the things you love, the chances are that you would be much more happy with the care that you've been given as opposed to if you were not back to the doing all the things you love, right? Which kind of makes sense, I guess. But that didn't show necessarily so well in the three months because then you're just happy. I'm, I'm, I'm in a study, I'm being looked after, I'm, I'm happy with that. But the, the so your three-year follow-up showed that the, the levels of pain didn't change, but the, the levels of disability had continued to drop, yeah, right? Yeah, still, yeah. So so uh, for the first, like for the one-year follow-up, and, and I think it's important to, like, I don't know how many RCTs you've seen with a long-term follow-up, like over a year, it's, yeah. it's hardly anyone. Yeah, yeah. 
so it's and and obviously reasons for that is that it's really difficult to get hold of patients, knowing what they've done, and 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 all these kind of things. So you're right. Uh, the the pain levels had sort of uh, there wasn't a statistical uh, difference, uh, but but the the dis- the function. Uh, so you could argue then, and this is again, it's it's uh, there's several studies uh, sort of. Some or oh, there's conflicting evidence with this. Some people will say, well, you can't change pain, uh, but you can change how people respond to pain. So they'll be more functional even though they have pain. And and you could say at one point, you could say, well, the three-year follow-up argument sort of follows that. But then some of JP's work uh, where he looked at, uh, he was tracking uh, patients, um, how does change unfold? Yeah, that paper, paper he had, uh, yeah where you look at and and you actually see that there's a there seem to be a very close link to to how pain and disability moves together with other dimensions like uh feeling of of um self-efficacy or control and and fear and and some of these things were highly sort of correlated to each other um but but one of the things that he, that he has said as well is that I think what we, if we're giving people the the tools to deal with their flare-ups, uh, it seems to pain seems to go up, but not all the other dimensions necessarily follow. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. So, so if you don't have control of your pain, your fear will go up, your mm. lack of feeling of of control will go up. Like like all these things seem to go up. But if, if you've experienced that you have control, you get pain, but not necessarily all the other dimensions mm. follow on from that, which I think is, is an important finding as well. And it makes sort of, I would say, sense. Um, and, and then I guess the question is, why does the, and, and this is the beauty, I think, with behavior change, is that if you change behavior, the the treatment will continue regardless of whether you see a therapist or not. So so that's why I, I really don't see why we shouldn't <laughs> really have a focus on on getting the patient. I mean, I think that's what most people want. Like we want patients to be like don't need us anymore. That mm-hmm. that should be our aim, shouldn't it? Like like people should get their uh, their self-efficacy and, and and their resilience and all these things in, in order, so they don't necessarily have to see us again, right? It's I'm not saying they they're not allowed to contact us, but but quite often you see they come back in. You have maybe one or two sessions where you get things in line again, and then they sort of head back into. Um, which is why I think in the new study that uh, Peter and, and, and Kieran and, and Peter Kent and, and JP is also part of, uh, the Restore trial, they put in a booster session, yeah, uh, right. a boost, booster session. And I, I think that makes a lot of sense uh, if you think about, if you compare, say, what we do to diabetes care, you wouldn't well, three months we measure your blood, uh, your sugar level, and, and then after that we, we don't really care anymore. So you can see why being adamant to the behavior, uh, maintaining mm. their functional capacity would, would be important to, to follow up on. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's, that's one, of, I think one of your recommendations in your paper, just have, you know, you were speculating about booster sessions or top-up sessions where you where patients can yeah. kind of just check in yeah. and that does kind of that you know there's always exactly. a discussion about maintenance care of manual therapy you know seeing patients you know you know really really kind of recurrently and um but i think there is an argument yeah. isn't there to have these infrequent 
but planned sessions which are flexible and can be moved depending on how yeah. the patient chooses they might say yeah. actually i feel great I don't, I, you know i'm feeling happy and functional i don't need to see you next week let's let's push it back to three months or four months whatever um, but there's value there's value in yeah, that. yeah absolutely yeah i think it is and and also the notion if, if we think about patients being unique we should also think that <laughs> it's almost like they're they're unique every day like so so mm -hmm. Why do we think that the care that you delivered, say, 12 weeks, should be sustainable mm. for any other condition that occurred in their life mm. for the next 20 years? Like, it doesn't really make sense. I, I think the notion, of, and I don't even know where the 12 weeks came from. Like, why, why is it that every study done almost looks at 12 weeks as a, as a uniform mm. sort of period? And, and I think it's probably due to logistical reasons like it makes a lot of sense it's it's in between say if you start january you finish till the summer like like this there's, there's there's reasons why it occur but i think that it doesn't necessarily make sense why you couldn't have any like booster sessions or or anything like that where you could easily tailor say the next six months or the next six months um but you could i guess you could say that if you build resilience and uh, sort of adaptability then what you're aiming for is that the body will adapt to other things that is being thrown at it mm. uh, later in life as well i guess so it's, it's really trying to get that uh, knowledge across with a patient because they have i mean we're really trying to get them to sit with the knowledge i yeah. think that's the, the main point taking on because from my experience around maintenance maintenance care is not the right word but that episodic care or, or, you know, when patients check in with you, um, yeah. once they've kind of recovered, if you like, yeah. often the reason for that is that from, from a kind of manual therapy point of view, it's a bit like taking your yeah. car to get an MOT or, you know, to get it kind of checked out yeah. that, that, you know, everything's in alignment and the tires are straight. And often clinicians will spend time checking the patient's structure and saying, oh yeah, the, you know, yeah. your shoulders are level, hips are, whereas yeah, yeah. that, that, and you know, they do a bit of treatment and the, the patient comes back, you know, three, four months later. Um, but I think yeah. that with CFT, it's, it's different. It's about checking in the patient's beliefs and values, how they're, yeah. you know, all those things, how, how it's going. Exactly. And I think, uh, I don't know if you remember, but some of Sam Bansley, Sam Bansley's work, she, they looked at that with uh, the trajectories for mm. the responders and non-responders. Uh, and it's kind of in line with the work that, that JP paper how does change unfold did as well like like he would he would list that uh husband was admitted to hospital and yeah. suddenly you saw this spike yeah. in all the sensitivity so so i i i think from if you think about that it makes a lot of sense and uh i can't remember uh, I, I think i saw a tweet the other day of uh of somebody saying uh, uh something about their shoulder pain how could the shoulder yeah, pain be? Yeah. <laughs> how could the shoulder pain be so bad now that you have? Uh, 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 it was something like, "How did I uh, manage to get shoulder pain when quarantine?" That's I right. asked myself yeah. during my twentieth set for some push yeah. variation, Brilliant. Yeah. while worrying about my income, reduced sleep, and everything. So, so surely, if mm. if we weren't in quarantine, I think we'd probably see the busiest time of our lives mm. right now with 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 patients coming in with. Uh, stiff necks and backs and lack of sleep because of pain and, and all that. So it's really a strange period, I think. And, and I don't know what we'll see after this, whether it's be quite a busy year with, with all this happening.
yeah uh, for different people i guess so 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 it's really about uh, i think again the, the biocycle social model lends as well very nicely to to take a, a 360 view of, of the patient and and really trying to figure out how does how does uh, anything or things that goes on in their life influence their current situation uh, and and function if you like so uh, and i yeah. think just yeah just finishing up i think for me to say that it's such there's such a, a vast array of factors and situations and i think from a clinical point of view from my as a therapist as a clinician is how to make sense how do i how do i you yeah. know how do i begin to kind of systematically but flexibly yeah apply the biosuccession model which pretty much just says everything's yeah. important for yeah. everyone you know You're everything's right. important and i think cft You're just right. it gives you that framework doesn't it where you can begin to yeah. you can begin to navigate because otherwise you're just bamboozled by you know and I think yeah. that's one of the challenges of the, of the BPS models that it's that it, it, you know as a as a clinician or as a student or as a new grad you're like well, where do I even start how do I even you know yeah. begin to apply this model to, to this individual in yeah. front of me and the CFT gives you that that kind of starting point yeah and it was one of your questions I think where do you see like having traveled around the world and, yeah. and had done courses and stuff where do you see the challenges and I think some some of the things you hear is that after I started to listen more, I got all this new information and now what do I do with mm. it? So, so again, I feel uh, sometimes people are afraid that they don't have the capacity or competency to sit with that information mm. and, and, and make. But, but I, th this is again why I think some of the papers and, and particularly the, the 2018 paper is, is a great paper to show practically that, that you, you, you follow these steps of trying to make sense uh, but tr making a model where you apply these behavioral principles of exposure uh, in a graduated manner and then uh, addressing lifestyle factors and and i think we shouldn't be afraid to to be like i i quite often use the michael jordan quote where he says he missed twenty six thousand shots and he's, he's done all these mistakes where but but it's through the mistakes that we mm. actually learn how to become better clinicians mm. so so i think also the notion that i go to one cft course and now i've suddenly <laughs> understood all of it or or people say well you wrote in that paper that it took cows to learn and you think about well it's not really that much if you think about the complexity of pain and somebody coming in with 20 years of pain that you should like do a certificate of reading about it on online and you should suddenly be able to deliver high quality care like it's, it's it is quite complex mm. and it does require a lot of training and and but but I, I don't think we should be discouraged by the fact that you learn as you grow and 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 you do this um and and i think even the good thing about neurotherapists coming up is that they don't have to unlearn things before they learn new things. Like they can start at a different point. I think that's a good, a good point to, to finish up. I wanted to also just say your work for painedcom Yeah. Which is a brilliant resource and I'm constantly on it and I'm constantly kind of um, signposting it to patients and drawing yeah. upon the resources, which is so, oh, so helpful because patients often ask, you know, where can I get, good information about you know, back pain or pain and they've been on Google and they've you know scared themselves yeah. to death or yeah. they've just, so it's, it's, it's brilliant. It's such a good resource. Excellent. Thank you very much. And that's, uh, again, it's, it's the group that's delivered that, uh, John Hurley is, is, is yeah. the guy that's now, uh, posting. And so he's doing 
a good job there. And in the uh, in the show notes, I put uh, the link to Painhead. I put the link to your papers too. Excellent. And I'll link. Um, Excellent. Just Peter's not his his CFT paper a couple of years ago, which kind of summarised or presented the whole model. Yeah. I think it was a physical therapy yeah, the, journal. The 2018 uh, that was it. Uh, paper. Yeah. Uh, Shartan, thank you so much for coming board. Thank you so much for your your generous time and and keep up your excellent work. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. And it's been a pleasure to, to chat to Oliver. And, and likewise, keep up the great work. It's really great. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs. And check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.